0: Welcome to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast. This is your host, DPT Steph, your doctor of physical therapy, bringing you all things PT with an interdisciplinary approach so that you can be the best clinician that you want to be. Thank you for tuning in to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast. This is Stephanie, your doctor of physical therapy, otherwise known as DPT Steph. On this episode, we'll be talking with occupational therapist Amira, otherwise known as Marvelous Miracles on Instagram, who I'm so excited to have today. Amira, why don't you go ahead and give us a little introduction about yourself.
1: Hello, my name is Amira and I am an occupational therapist. The weather is finally breaking out here, which is very nice. We can actually go outside and it not be sweltering hot. So I live and work in Phoenix, Arizona in early intervention. I graduated from OT school back in 2019. I've been in early intervention ever since and
0: I love it and I'm happy to be here. Thank you for coming on. I'm so excited to have you. I'm pretty sure you're the first OT that we are going to have on the podcast. So super important to our interdisciplinary collaboration. As always, PTs work hand in hand with OTs in so many settings. Uh, Kind of give us a little overview as to how you decided to become an OT and what your journey has been like. Yeah. So I feel
1: like there's, and I always say this, there's like two categories of people. There's the people who have always known they wanted to be an OT. They knew what it was from the start. And then there's the group of people who had no clue what OT is and they kind of stumbled across it. And I'm definitely in that second category. So I've always had a heart for pediatrics. I, like many other healthcare professionals, thought I was going to go into medicine, become a physician. I wanted to be a pediatrician and then a neonatologist and Then I took chemistry and they call it a weed out course in undergrad. And that is absolutely the case for me because I was like, this is terrible. This is not what I want to do. And for a lot of other reasons, I just decided medicine wasn't quite the path for me, but I still wanted something that blended my love for pediatrics, the human body, psychology, like all of these really fascinating things that I've always loved. And so I was nannying at the time for a hand OT and I was like, can you tell me a little bit about what you do? And she just kind of opened my eyes to the the world of OT and i think here ever
0: since. I love it. So you said you had a love for pediatrics. Did you always know you were going to end up in EI then once you graduated OT school?
1: No. So because I wanted to be a neonatologist, I spent a lot of time looking into the NICU. So I actually got to shadow and do some work in a NICU during my clinical rotations. And then for my doctoral capstone project at Seattle Children's Hospital, I was with the infant team over there. And so I got to be surrounded by NICU therapists, OTs, PTs, SLPs, and I loved it. But when I was in the NICU, I kept hearing about when the babies are discharged, you know, where do they go? And they were being referred to this early intervention program. And so I decided I actually wanted to work a little bit more with that transition because you know leaving the NICU is such a scary time for families and I was like that might be actually really cool sounds like a little bit more in line and to be real those jobs are a lot easier to get than getting a job in the NICU so it all really worked out and I feel like because I did so much research and things in the NICU and you know premature infants and things like that it has really complemented my work in early intervention very very well. So for someone who
0: doesn't know what early intervention is, give us a rundown of what kind of children you work with and see day to day.
1: Yeah. So it is a state program and we work with kiddos birth to three. It's going to look different depending on what state you're in. I'm in Arizona, so ours is birth to three. Some states are birth to five, but typically it's the baby and toddler age range. And it is uh, kiddos who have a variety of different diagnoses or no diagnoses. They just have a developmental delay for some reason. And they are delayed in an area of child development. So communication, physical development, social emotional skills, adaptive and self-help cognitive skills. So we go through an evaluation process to see, you know, where, they delayed in these areas, and then they work with a team. So on our team, again, this is specific to Arizona, but on our team, we have PTs, OTs, SOPS, developmental specialists, vision and hearing specialists, and a child psychologist, which is really cool. So you get all of these different supports and services, and we support the family, you know, throughout their time in the early intervention program.
0: What are some, I know you touched a little bit of cases that you would see so what are maybe some of the most common cases that you tend to see i know developmental delay is more of like a global overview of so many things we have that in pt as well but if there are any specifics that you could shed light to
1: yeah so prematurity really really premature babies autism pretty big one down syndrome cerebral palsy spina bifida trying to think there's so many anything like genetic or chromosomal abnormalities, but I would say those are the majority. And then with the babies, um, actually a lot of babies who are drug exposed. So with a diagnosis of NAS or neonatal abstinence syndrome. So those are really what I see a lot with babies, torticollis, typically our PTs take the torticollis babies. I think that's kind of the overall, but there's like a whole list of, you know, what they could have. And again, they could also not have a diagnosis. They could just be the parent has, you know, a concern about development, which is the nice thing that I always like to say when I'm mentioning early intervention is that, you know, if you're a parent listening perhaps or something like that if you have any concern at all you don't have to have a referral you can just google like arizona early intervention program and you can reach directly out and get a referral for an evaluation
0: yeah and new york is the same way so you can also just reach out and our early intervention is from zero to three years old as well so it's yeah super easy to access it of course depending on the state but you have two states where you could easily access it (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Awesome. So what is your, I know you work with PTs and a bunch of other professionals day to day. What is your, if you could loosely give a definition of PT from an OT perspective?
1: I love this question. Okay, (laughs) let me clarify. Is this just overall in general or is this specific to the early intervention setting? You can do in general. In general, okay. So I feel like um, the physical therapists are really those mobility experts. So, well, I'm going to bring it back to early intervention because that's kind of my- (laughs) That's fine, yeah. If I have a baby who is not walking by a certain age, I'm like, okay, Could it be body awareness? Maybe, but could it also be something going on with the structure of their hips or with their ankles, things like that. Our PTs and our team are really great for looking at structural issues, gait, um, anything with like gross motor development, but kind of my lens, like, yes, OTs can also of course work on gross motor skills, but not again, in my experience, not what I do is with if it's a structural issue. Um, same with like torticollis. Now there are some OTs who have advanced training and things like torticollis, but at the core of it, that's not something that we're typically taught how to um, manage. And so I, I feel like that's focused on a little bit more in PT. And so that's why I like our PTs, because again, it comes back to it being a structural kind of, of issue. So I feel like that's mostly to, the difference that I see is mobility and very much like structural issues, especially for the lower body, but not to say that PTs <laughs> only do lower bodies or OTs
0: only do upper body. You know, there's a lot of crossover. Yeah. And I think that's something that is often forgotten, you know, I'm sure you get messages as well. Like, why'd you become an OT, not a PT? What's the difference between OT and PT? And some people do think it's that upper body versus lower body. And I'm like, no, there's so much more to it, which is why we have these discussions. Absolutely. And I
1: think the big thing too is equipment. So when we have kiddos who need like a gait trainer or a stander, I'm always like, okay, well, we have to get the PT on the plan <laughs> because that's not an area that I know. But then again, I have shadowed OTs who are in like wheelchair clinics. And so it's so interesting. But I feel like you have to think about the advanced certifications. I feel like a lot of time PT and OT, like if you're both interested in, you know, pelvic health or something, you can get those advanced certifications. But just our basic general knowledge that we come out of school with, I think is a little bit different, but then you can specialize. And the more you specialize, the more I think similar sometimes you do start to look.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think it also just kind of brings to light how much the two disciplines can really work together because there is so much overlap in some areas. So you really also understand when you go from an OT session to a PT session with the same kiddo and you can kind of say, okay, I know why they did that or I understand what their plan of care is and then how can I integrate it with my skills or my added skills if it's a certification or something else.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the two professions just complement each other so well. And so that's why I love that there's so much collaboration. Like I did my level two field work, my clinical rotations. One was in acute care. And and I was on the neural neuro unit, and so we did a lot of collaboration with PT. And I just really like that both of us coming in there together. You know, we're coming at it from different lens. We might have kind of different goals, but at the end of the day, we have a big overarching goal <laughs> of helping our patient discharge and go home safely and things like that. But I think that they complement each other so well, and that's definitely the case to an in early intervention. I love that we are in a team based model, so I get to do co treatments and joint sessions with our PTs or with our SLPs and. Just you know, like I said, we're working on the same things. We overall have the same goal, but we're approaching it a little bit differently. But I think that's the cool thing about our professions is they just—they're
0: like you know—they just—they go (laughs) go so well together. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. I want to switch gears for a second. So we connected through social media, and you're doing fantastic things on social media. And we'll give the contact info in the description of the podcast if you're listening, so you guys know where to find everybody talk me through, you know, when you got on social media and like where you saw it coming to where it is today.
1: Oh my gosh, I could never have imagined. And I know you've talked before about that as well, just how it kind of, you know, you start off so small and just so eager to get started. And then it's like, whoa, I have so many new friends, (laughs) making so many connections, but it's so cool. So I, I got on social media in April of 2020. So really once we were entering the pandemic and I was really lonely. I was feeling like this feelings of isolation. I had gone virtual. I really didn't have that many friends in Arizona because I was new here. And so I had a couple of other OT friends who were really plugged into the Instagram community for OT. And prior to this, like I had a personal Instagram, but I kind of Cut back. It was just not good for my mental health, to be honest, being on personal social media, but that's another conversation. So, anyway, so I decided to also join because I had these friends. And so I joined and I was like, okay, you know, we'll see what happens. I started talking about early intervention and just my experiences as a new graduate in early intervention. And from there, I connected with so many other amazing practitioners in early intervention and just in OT in general. And I mean, from there, it just kind of blossomed and turned into something I could have never imagined. And now it's this. Whole brand where I talk about kind of three main areas. So OT, faith, and finance, because these are the big areas in my life. So talk about OT and kind of my journey to OT and how I'm doing an early intervention. I talk about faith because that's a huge part of what I do. So whether you have, you know, faith in God, faith in yourself, faith that humanity is going to be loving once again, one day, I just feel like faith is such a huge thing that, you know, we need to have in this day and age. And so I talk about that, some motivation, inspiration, and then I talk about just navigating like the financial side of adulting and how like we come out of school and we we start making this money but we have these loans and we're supposed to contribute to a 401k and nobody tells us these things and so now I've kind of started to pivot into more of the personal finance space but the cool thing is that it's you know it's your social media and you can make it into whatever you want and there's going to be people who resonate and relate to your story and it's just been such a fun fun time and such a cool um, experience just building that community and being part of it.
0: Yeah. And like you said, there's so many different topics and so many different things that you can talk about, but it's your page and you attracted obviously over 10,000 plus people so far. So it's obviously very popular, which is, it's great. I mean, I've also, I'm learning so many finance things and I'm like, oh crud, I really should look into this. And I'm pretty sure my benefits have this. I don't know. But now it's like all these little reminders. How did you personally kind of get into the finance side of things? Cause how, like how do students know where to start?
1: Oh my gosh, I just hit a, a breaking point. I was so tired of feeling like I didn't know what I was doing with my money. I, I landed a, a pretty high earning position right out of graduate school. And I was very, very strategic and how I did that and how I went about that. And the reason I did that is because I graduated with a load of student loans, uh, student loan debt. So well over the 100k, you know, six figure mark. Um, my school was very, very expensive. It was a private school and a very high cost of living place. And so I brought the full tuition amount, you know, plus some. And so I just had all of these loans and I was like, okay, I have to make X, Y, and Z amount so that I can start paying back these loans. But then I was like, but what else am I supposed to be doing with this money? Like, do I need some in savings? What do I do? Like, where does it go? You know, I started hearing about these different types of accounts. And then I was like, well, what is this thing called a 401k? I mean, I don't have one. Is that bad? So (laughs) it's just like, I had all of these questions. And so I started listening to podcasts. I started attending like free webinars and masterclasses from people I was finding on social media. And so I actually plugged more into the personal finance community. And that's when I really started to learn. And I was like, wait a minute, this is not as hard as I thought it was. Like, if I just sit down and put in the work, like, if I could spend all this time becoming an OT, earning a doctorate, like, I could sit down and figure out how to manage my money. And so I really kind of took myself on this journey. um, And now I'm really dedicated to just teaching other people that because I feel like we don't learn that in school. And, yes, we love our profession, but I, I also believe that you should get paid well. You know, you should know how to negotiate. You should know how to ask for a raise. Um, you should just know all of these different things. And I feel like it wasn't being talked about enough. And so mm-hmm. I was like, well, I'm just going to do it as uncomfortable as it is, as uncomfortable as it honestly still is sometimes. I, f- I know, I know that it's helping people and that's,
0: you know, that's just my goal. Yeah. So what are your tips for students when they're making that transition from graduation to first job and they're getting you know the first five ten paychecks and they're like oh gosh should I go on a shopping spree do I go buy a house what do I do yeah so oh my gosh this conversation
1: could be very long so let me figure <laughs> out how to like shorten it down a little bit time. so the first thing okay so the first thing I always like to say is you have to know your numbers you have to know where to start um for me this was a huge issue so I didn't know my overall student loan balance because I was like out of sight, out of mind, I'm probably going to die with this debt. So it is what it is. I don't want to see it. And you really have to kind of overcome that and sit with it. And on it, like I cried, I was like, this really sucks. I have gotten myself into this situation. But I always say at the end of the day, you did what you needed to do to get where you want it to be. And that was absolutely the case for me. Could I have went to a slightly cheaper school? Sure, but I love the education I got. Like I love the teachers, I love the friends I made, and so I'm not going to say I necessarily regret it. But I do wish I had like spent a little bit more time thinking about just the rate of return on going to this such such an expensive school, and then what I'm realistically going to get paid. Um, but anyway, so knowing your numbers, knowing how much debt are you in, what you know, plan are you currently on, what is your interest rate, what is the minimum balance you need to be paying so that it doesn't increase. So this is an issue that. I've talked to quite a few people about now and just, I'm sure you've heard where you're paying the minimum, you pay it for five years, you look at your balance and it's shot up by like, you know, two to three, Four or 5K. And yep. you're like, wait a minute, how did this happen? And it's because you didn't have a great plan. You didn't know what was actually happening on that account. So I always say, you know, because majority of students that I talk to, um, they graduate with student loan debt. And whether you want to aggressively do it, pay it off in, you know, three to five years or 10 to 20 years, it doesn't matter. But you do need a plan, you do need a strategy, and you do have to know those numbers. So I always say start there. Um, and then from there, just kind of knowing, you know, what are your basic living expenses? How much are you spending per month? How much do you have left over at the end of the month? And then from there, you can really work on budgeting. I do believe in treating yourself. Even when you're in student loan debt, I still get regular facials. Um, And I believe that, you know, if you deprive yourself too much, you're going to start to overindulge. So it's really important to build that into your budget. But again, you have to know where to start. You have to know what am I bringing in per month? You know, what are my expenses? What are my bills? How much do I need to pay on my student loans? And then, then we get into complicated things like investing, which is really important. (laughs) You can invest all in student loan debt, but um, that's really where I I just kind of like to like to start.
0: Yeah. And it might be also like, I'm imagining, you know, someone sits down, you have to figure out all your paperwork and all your numbers and add things up and kind of I'm picturing like an excel sheet in my head of organizing everything right now but it's like yes it is a lot of work and it is tedious but think of like you can spend three hours on TikTok or three hours getting your life together and thinking yourself in another five ten years when you have it all straightened out
1: absolutely <laughs> and I think that's the thing that it might be kind of hard I think that's the hardest part is you have to think about so much more than just the now and for me that was an issue because I was like what does Amira now want if Amira wants it now, she deserves it now. And that was the mindset I had. And so, so much of money too, is overcoming that mindset and addressing why do you spend the way you spend, right? You know, how were you raised? Because that absolutely plays a part into your relationship with money and your relationship with finances. And so I had to really deal with a lot of like, you know, really deep um, issues that I had surrounding my relationship with money. And I think that's also where you have to start. But again, that's also like a whole nother conversation (laughs) dealing with like, just the emotional part of managing your money. But I just feel like, it's so important for us to talk about and it can be overwhelming. But like you said, if you just sit down and you commit and you organize yourself, I mean, now there's so many different apps. So I, mm-hmm. I started using the Mint app and I like that. As like, I'm a visual person. I can see, you know, what's coming in, where is it going? Where do I want it to go? And, you know, you have to think of your money like an employee. You want it to be working for you, not against you. So you need to tell it where to go. You need to control your money. But again, that really goes back to that mindset part and why you really, really have to address. Do you have that healthy relationship with money?
0: Yeah. And I also want to transition a little bit too, because I've noticed you talking about like salaries and, or what OTs are getting paid in certain areas and certain settings and stuff like that. And I know I've touched on it on my Instagram for PT students as well of making sure you're not getting, for lack of better words, lowballed. You're actually getting paid what you're worth. And what are some of like the big tips that maybe you would give students when they are looking at their first job? Obviously it varies Dollar-wise, by location, by setting, etc., but more like generic tips.
1: Yeah, so I think it's really important that you do that research and figure out, you know, what is the market value for you as a PT, as an OT, SLP. What are people, you know, being paid in that same boat as you? So, are you a new graduate? Are you experienced? Do you have advanced? You know certifications or specialties, but you really have to go into that first job knowing what you should be asking for. A um, couple other things I always say to negotiate. If anyone gives me this long paragraph DM and they say should I negotiate, I'm not even going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to say yes, you should negotiate. <laughs> like I don't care what situation that you are presenting me with, I'm always going to say negotiate. Even if they say we can't do any more than this, this is set, you can still ask because there's never any harm in asking, and that's the advice that I got. And like I said, when I first graduated, I didn't really know what I was doing with my money, but but I knew I wanted to make as much of it as I could. And you are not a bad person for (laughs) wanting to make Mm -hmm. as much money as you can, because money is a tool that grants us freedom and flexibility and all of these different things. And so I really went into that first job and I was like, okay, let me figure out what is the average, you know, for Arizona. Okay, now what's the average for Phoenix? What's the average for early intervention? And so really breaking it down that way. Um, For OTs, we have OTSalary.com, but you can also look on BLS.gov to kind of see and get some numbers in your head when you go to negotiate, make sure you do it in writing. So I know you, Steph, have also talked about negotiation tips and things, but you know, if they, they try to get you to do it like right there on the spot, accept <laughs> yeah, no, 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 never. no, no, <laughs> you do not have to do that.
0: And um, what's your yeah. opinion too? I'm going to stop you for a second. Um, oh, you're fine. Uh-huh. What's your opinion too, then if you're in an interview or day after the interview and they ask you for a number before giving you an offer?
1: Oh, this is good. Yeah. I always try to get them to give the number first. It's so funny. Do you know that Spider-Man meme where it's like one Spider-Man is looking at you and then the other. (laughs) and It's like you first. No, you first. That's really how it is. And so I'll say, and this is even true with like brand collaborations and social media that I do too. They'll be like, what's your, um, you know, what is your rate? And I'm like, well, what's your budget? <laughs> based on the scope of work that you're asking me to do, what's your budget for this? And so you can absolutely say, what are you all offering right now? What's the range of what you're offering based on, you know, what we discussed, what my roles and responsibilities are gonna be within the company. What is your range? Now, if they absolutely will not give you a number, then you can put a number out first. Um, I also say, don't do a range. Now, some people say you can do a range. I say, go in with a concrete number because I, I give the analogy, if you go to the grocery store, there's a banana and they say, you know, you can pay one cent for this. You can pay $1. What are you going to pay? You're going to pay the one cent, like not comparing us to bananas, but you can yeah, absolutely, true. you know, you have to give them a concrete number. And then from there, they're going to come back. So, you know, you want to go a little bit higher. I, I advise between five to 10 K higher than what you actually want based on your research. Again, you know, base it on facts, base it on research and figures and things like that. Um, but I go in with, with pretty high. And then we kind of come down and, you know, somewhere where I am f- comfortable where I want to be.
0: Right, and it's better to overshoot than undershoot because they see that low number, they will just take it without a question and you can't come back from that. Oh, no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay, perfect. I mean, I think those are some great tips. I totally agree with everything you've said thus far. I mean, as far as PT resources, I know when looking at salary, we also have like Glassdoor, LinkedIn, Indeed are the ones that we usually go to. I know you mentioned too for OT, is there anywhere else that you would check to see kind of what's out there?
1: Yeah. So one thing that I did that was really helpful, this can be a little trickier, is figuring out what exactly the company makes every time you provide a service. So I looked up like Arizona early intervention billing manual and lots of stuff came up and I kind of weed it through there. And I found the exact rate book that shows what the company is making when I perform oh, a service. Oh, you're smart, smart. <laughs> so this is something I like now. I, I, I tell people to try to find like the reimbursement, the fee schedule, like anything that you can find, because then you're going to know. So recently I switched to contracting with my position and we negotiated for probably a good three and a half to four months. Um, And they initially offered about $3 more an hour. And I ended up getting it up to $13 more an hour. And the reason I did this is because I sent back a screenshot and I was like, listen, this is how much you're getting paid. And this is how much, you know, I'm going to have to be be setting aside for taxes. So, and it's okay. You know, I mean, and they, they accepted it. They were like, actually, you're right. Like this is okay. But you know, I think, right. You have to know what your options are. If I don't tell other people what worked for me, you're not going to know. You're not going to know that you could possibly find the exact number. Now, of course, they're not going to give you that exact number because they have company overhead costs, you know, benefits, things like that If you're an employee. But I knew, okay, this is the number that they're getting every time i see a patient in early intervention or a client in early intervention so i want to be as close to this number as possible i'm not going to get this number exactly but i can tell if if they're taking you know 80 percent of what they're they're making you're getting 20 mm-hmm. that's that's an issue <laughs> that's definitely an issue and so if you can really dig around like you can type in you know your state the setting reimbursement schedule billing manual fee schedule Um, insurance reimbursement play around with the words I don't know everything obviously that there is to know but play around with it and see if you can start to find because again once you have those real numbers in your head you're in like good
0: shape (laughs) it's so important it's wow I'm so happy you brought that up too because it's something that most people don't think of doing because they just accept it for what it is thinking that okay well this is what you know 80% of the practices in my state or in my city pay so like it must be accurate but it's not true because they're just trying to pay as little as possible so that the people at the top can get paid the most or, you know, the bills get paid and the building stays open.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep. And I mean, healthcare is a business. Like we go into it because we have these beautiful and kind and nurturing hearts. And that's true. But the people who are running things typically behind the scenes, they are trying to make a profit. And the less that they pay you, the less that you'll accept, the more that they make. And you know, you, you have to be aware of that, and you know you yeah. have to just go in with that knowledge. And like I said, you're not a bad person for wanting more money, asking for more money, asking for a raise because when you feel like you're being respected financially, like you you just feel better, right? That excitement when you first get that position that wears off eventually. You're just, it's a job. It it becomes a job. No matter how much you love it, it becomes a job. And so if you're being underpaid and you accept this lowball offer because you're like, whatever, I'm just excited to have this job, that's going to fade. And then you're going to fall into that terrible cycle of feeling like I'm getting burnt out. I'm not making enough money. I can't make ends meet. I have these student loans creeping up after six months graduating. I feel like I'm living paycheck to paycheck. And you know, that's really why I have started this more financial focus because I don't want that. I don't want that for anyone. I don't want that for any therapist, any healthcare professional. We deserve more than that. So
0: absolutely. And it also kind of sets the pace then for your entire career. Because if you, the lower you start, the harder it is then to work up to whenever you change jobs or change positions, et cetera.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you want to, you want to start off on the right foot and allow yourself that room to grow and trust me, I've seen these reimbursement rates. There, There's room. <laughs> there's room to grow. They can offer you more. And, you know, my first position, the offer was great. You know, I talk about it on my page, but the offer was, it was good, but it was actually more than I was expecting. But I was like, wait, but if you can offer this, you can probably offer, you know, one, two, three K more. So why am I not going to ask? Like, yeah. so don't accept the first offer, even if that offer is something that exceeds what you even expected, which was my case. But then I got paid even more. And so it's like, you know, you don't have to accept that first offer because if they can pay you 36 an hour, they can probably pay you 38 an hour. I'm pretty sure. So it's definitely, true. definitely
0: ask. <laughs> Very true. What would you recommend for students who maybe they're going into this first job or their first interview or their first offer? And they're like, you know what, but I'm a new grad. So I shouldn't really ask for that much more because I'm still, I don't have any experience yet. Or maybe the person that offers them turns around and says, you know what? No, you have no experience yet. Like we can't pay you more.
1: Yeah, that definitely happens. And I think that there's some settings where it's a lot tougher to negotiate too. And like hospital systems, I feel like are a lot harder because they are more of that set, you know, set scale and things like that. Um, sometimes outpatient clinics have a little bit more wiggle room depending on how large or small it is. Home health, SNF, early intervention in my case had a lot more wiggle room because they get reimbursed a little bit more for states. But I think the big thing with that is, you know, I teach people that you still have power as a new graduate and your power is that you are still bringing in money for that company. They are still making money when you perform the service, regardless of if I'm doing it as a new graduate or someone who is five, 10 years in, like insurance doesn't care. (laughs) Insurance is like the service was provided. I don't really care who did it. It, you know, the company still makes the same amount. So yes, you do have to have that trade-off of, okay, but you might need more mentorship. You might need more, you know, supervision, things like that. Sure. But I always tell people like, don't go in with that mindset. Oh, I'm just a new grad. No, you're not just a new grad. You are a new graduate who is ready to get in there and show them what you have to offer, you know, and and be that value to the company and to your patients and clients and things. Um, So just remembering that you bring in the same amount as anyone else. So, you don't deserve to get lowballed just because you are coming straight out of school. That's not. Yeah. Fair.
0: <laughs> and use honestly, you can also change like the uh, tone of the conversation too, like, or in your head too. Like, as a new grad, you are so moldable, like, the most moldable mm-hmm. you will be in your entire career. So, this is a perfect opportunity for a big hospital, big chain, or, you know, these very, high employed, I'd say, places to kind of make you into the therapist that they want you to be, which has its pluses and minuses. But you can also use that as like a little swing saying, hey, you know, I'm a new grad, but you can make me whatever therapist you want me to be. So in a way, they kind of have control over you there. And you can say, all right, well, you know what, use it to your advantage. Uh, So that's why, you know, you don't have to like try to break all these old patterns and old routines of things I did for the past 15 years.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I think too, as a new graduate, you know, you like, I don't, I think it's like a more of a mindset thing. Like you do have experience when new grads were like, when they're like, well, I don't have any experience. I'm like, well, did you complete your clinical rotations? Yes, you did. I'm pretty sure at some point you were on your own. Yes. You still had some supervision, some mentorship there, but when you pass your, your clinicals, when you pass your field work, they're saying that you are able to practice as an entry-level practitioner. So That's why I say it's like a mindset thing. Money in general is very much mindset, but I I truly believe even with negotiation, it's still a mindset thing. Because if you go in thinking like, well, I'm just lucky to be here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just glad to get this offer. It's like, yes, you can still feel that way, but you also have to walk in that boldness and confidence that, you know what? I know what I'm doing. I'm fresh out of school. I'm, I'm excited. I'm peppy. I'm bubbly. I'm ready to go in. I'm ready to be molded, like you said. And so when you go in with that confidence, you will feel a lot better about then asking for what you're worth because you know that you're worth more. You know what you're worth. So I'm not, but I'm not going to just say that, that's it. You have to be able to articulate that worth, right? Based on your facts and your research and things. So make sure you can articulate that worth, but it starts with knowing what you're worth too.
0: Exactly. And confident is not equivalent to cockiness. So it's a fine line. Sometimes say that again. <laughs> it's a very fine line. Confident does not equal cockiness, but you have to know when to stay in that lane of being confident and owning your stuff and knowing your worth and knowing your value and what you can provide
1: absolutely couldn't agree more
0: (laughs) (laughs) awesome all right any like final tips that you would give to students that whether it's in a finance aspect or just an ot aspect or rehab aspect in general anything that you think is important for students to know in their transition from student to clinician
1: yeah, just give yourself grace. I mean, I know that's like so cliche now to say because everyone says it, but absolutely just give yourself grace and, and be careful on social media. I think a lot of times, you know, you feel this pressure to, you know, well, I have to grow a following or I have to start a business or I have to have multiple side incomes and, and streams of incomes and I, I need to be an entrepreneur and and just give yourself grace to to learn in that season. You know, things didn't start revving up until, you know, six eight months or so when I, when I graduated. And so give yourself time to just make that adjustment. It's going to be really different. You're going to feel a lot different being a student versus being an actual practitioner. And so just being gentle with yourself, being patient with yourself, don't give yourself too much pressure. You know, you don't have to come out the gate and immediately start to specialize, just kind of sit with that excitement and that that feeling of like, you are finally where you've been working so incredibly hard and you've paid so much money, so much time and energy into getting to this point. So just enjoy that season of where you are and just know that you have plenty of time to, you know, dive into the world of entrepreneurship and things like that. But that being said, you can still think about money management and good money practices and things like that. Um, even if you are not, you know, a business owner or you're not, you know, monetizing on social media, things like that, you can still just learn the principles of doing well with your money, even as, you know, a traditional practitioner.
0: I love it. That was great. I have nothing to add to that. Perfectly said. <laughs> Where can people find you, Amira, if they want to reach out, connect, etc.? cetera?
1: Yeah, so I'm on Instagram at Marvelous ot that is miracles with two r's and same on my website so www.marvelousmiracles.com and on there i offer a variety of different services consultation coaching there's some freebies there's actually stuff a new freebie coming out today <laughs> so i am just sent you the link for that Um, and it is uh, called the crash course in personal finance that you didn't get in school and it really talks about how you can very simply no complication just figuring out what can i do after i get paid and so you know that's a freebie that i'll have on my website different services um, a blog i I love vlogging. I do a blog at least once a week, and so if you look on my website, you'll find a tab, and I talk about early intervention, OT, finances, like all the things on my blog. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is, if you're interested in early intervention, I do have um, another kind of business with two of my early intervention besties, Sarah Putt and Danielle DiLorenzo. and you can find us at the Real OTs of EI on Instagram and the Real OTs.com. We also have a podcast, and although we talk, it's called the Real OTs of EI. PTs and SOPs are more than welcome (laughs) to join us. We just talk about all of the reality of being an OT and EI, but it definitely still applies if you're a PT or SOP, also interested in early intervention.
0: Perfect. So many ways to connect. You guys have so many resources at your fingertips. I want to thank you, Amira, for coming on today. It was a pleasure to talk with you. And you guys know where to find her if you need anything. So thank Thank you. Thank you so
1: much. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the All Things Physical Therapy podcast. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe to stay updated on new episodes. You can find more episodes like these on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And to stay up to date, follow dpt.steph on Instagram or go to www.dptsteph.com.